This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holger Dressler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Joanna Poblete, an associate professor of history at Claremont Graduate University in California, about a new book, Balancing the Tides, Marine Practices in American Samoa, published by the University of Hawaii Press earlier this year. Joanna Poblete, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Joanna, I wonder if you could begin by telling our listeners a bit about yourself. Sure, absolutely. So I was born in San Francisco, California, and my background is Chinese, Filipino, Portuguese, American. And uh, I really uh, was exposed to a lot of different kinds of cultures and backgrounds as I was growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I did my undergraduate work at UC Davis, where I had a BA in history and a minor in Asian American studies. And then I went on to get my master's and PhD at UCLA. So um, all of these parts of my journey have really encouraged me and inspired me to become a historian of unincorporated territories. Great. Thanks. So uh, growing up in California with a with an eye towards the Pacific, um, how did you come to write this book about marine practices in American Samoa? Yeah, it's actually been a bit of a trajectory. So when I was an undergrad at UC Davis, I wrote an honors thesis that focused on the 1935 Repatriation Act of Filipinos, where the U.S. federal government paid for the free transport of any Filipino to return to Manila if they promised to never come back to the United States again. So this study of really the culmination of anti-Filipino sentiment on the West Coast during the Great Depression, as well as the fact that Filipinos are, at the time, were wards of the United States, U.S. nationals. This really generated my interest in unincorporated territories and Filipino legal history in particular. So when I went to UCLA for my graduate education, I quickly enrolled in a law school class on Asian American jurisprudence. And in that course, I realized that the studies in this course that we were examining focused mostly on citizens of foreign nations. So Chinese, Japanese, uh, Korean cases, and the impact that law has on mostly East Asians uh, and, and, um, and their impact on the law as well. And this did not really coincide with much of what I understood the Filipino legal experience to be. And so this really led me to start looking into the War of 1898 and the subsequent Treaty of Paris and then the Insular Cases ruling, which really categorized Filipinos along with Puerto Ricans and Chamorros in Guam and Guahan as belonging to, but not part of the United States. And so that became my real aha moment in grad school, where I I feel like I ran, I ran to my advisor's office and I said, I want to study all liminal groups 
who have come under direct U.S. colonial authority in different places and in different time periods so that we can think in a much more expansive way about the longer patterns of U.S. expansionism and colonialism. And my advisor at the time, Henry Yu, who's at UBC now, he said, you know, I'm so glad that you have found what you're passionate about and and really a, a great focus. But this overall idea is actually a long-term career goal, and it's not necessarily a manageable dissertation project. So he actually recommended that I take two of these groups that I'm interest, I was interested in and think about where they come together in a particular place or experience and use that as my initial case study. And then my next book could be about a different area. And that really, that kind of guidance has guided my actual career trajectory. So I, when I wrote my dissertation, and which became my first book on Filipino and Puerto Rican sugar plantation workers who moved to work on the plantations of the second colonized space of the U.S. territory of Hawaii, I always knew in the back of my mind that the next place that I really wanted to study was American Samoa, because there has just been um, not enough attention to this particular region, especially within the larger narrative of U.S. history, and uh, in particular from the perspective of historians. And my focus on the post-World War II period is are all things that we haven't seen a lot of work on. And I feel that, as we will talk about in terms of the chapters, there are some major ways in which what happens in American Samoa, what happens to the indigenous people of American Samoa, has direct impact on much larger American, federal, and even global issues. So um, so once I was finished with my dissertation, I was actually on a postdoc at UNC Chapel Hill in history there. And at the end of that postdoc, I was able to start my research on American Samoa. And I actually was very fortunate that one of my best friends from high school, her father actually worked with someone who was a, uh, was worked very closely with the congressional delegate to American Samoa in Washington, D.C. And so when I went on my initial research trip in 2008, she really took me under her wing. She uh, is my American Samoan mother and her family is my family there. And uh, she wouldn't even let me stay in a hotel after meeting me for the first uh, 30 minutes. So uh, she actually was able to help introduce me to many of the people that I talked to on my initial research trip. And and my goal on that research trip was really to not be an outsider who's coming in and trying to tell the, the indigenous people like what is important in their history, that I actually wanted to talk to people and say, what do you think about the impact that being an unincorporated territory of the United States has on on your life has had on on the history of this place and space and what what has changed and so after sitting down with various community leaders in 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 lots of different areas and um and uh kind of departments of 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 the government as well i really decided that a focus on marine practices and ocean use was a central theme that was coming out of a lot of the discussions that I was having. And because American Samoa is surrounded by the ocean and the ocean is such a key part of the traditional culture, that it's important to to really think through how these marine practices and ocean uses have shifted over time, particularly under the colonial relationship with the United States. Great. Thanks for this uh, trajectory that that led you to this book. I noticed reading the book 
Um, there are several central themes in it. Uh, it's obviously a book about the U.S. empire, as you mentioned, about a place within the U.S. empire that we don't always think about as much. It's even more specifically about policymaking in this unincorporated territory, which I think is quite interesting also for, for non-historians, for po political scientists and, and actual policymakers to be thinking about the different levels of policymaking there. And it's also an environmental history and a labor history. So um, let's delve a little bit deeper into the specific arguments of your book. Um, in your first chapter, you write about commercial fishing in American Samoa. Can you set the scene for us? Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about American Samoa, where it is, a little bit of its history, why it became a U.S. unincorporated territory, and then how commercial fishing developed on the island. Sure. So um, American Samoa is offici officially consists of five islands and two atolls in the South Pacific. It's the southernmost territory of the United States, and it is situated in the last time zone of the globe. It's about 2,600 miles southwest of Hawaii and a little more than 4,700 miles southwest of the continental U.S. West Coast. Now, the total landmass of these five islands and two atolls uh, is about 77 square miles. And based on the 2010 census, the population was recorded at 55,519 people. Now, American Samoa becomes quote-unquote American officially in 1900 when the U.S. Navy negotiates a deed of session with the local chiefs on the main island of Tituila. And um, there's a second set of negotiations in 1904, which actually happened today. Uh, today is Manu Manua Day uh, in uh, 1904. And um, as part of these treaties, there is an agreement between the two parties that local governance would be given to the indigenous population and that the U.S. federal government was more of a supervisory and um, authoritative entity that oversaw um, trade and military issues uh, and uh, economic issues. So we have American Samoa being a important in different moments of U.S. history, and again, both in kind of visible and invisible ways. Uh, one is a Navy port, especially important during World War II, uh, a major site for tuna canning, which we'll talk about when I, we discuss chapter two of this book. And uh, also the location of the largest national marine sanctuary in U.S. jurisdiction, which, again, I think not many people know about. So, um, so in terms of the first chapter and looking at commercial fishing, basically this, this chapter, like, many, like the other chapters in the book, are trying to highlight a couple of things. One thing is the impact that Western influence or U.S. colonialism has had on the indigenous of American Samoa and particularly on their daily lives. And so what you have happening, particularly during World War II and after, is a shift from a more subsistence-based lifestyle, living off uh, the land and the ocean to a cash-based economy where Local fishers are now being encouraged to fish for commercial purposes and particularly for the tuna canneries that um, are established in the 1960s, that the kind of fishing that starts to be encouraged by the U.S. federal government through actual government subsidies and, um, and funding programs are Western styles of fishing, Western kinds of equipment, motor, motorized boats. Um, metal hooks, uh, monofilament lines, as well as a Western approach to thinking about the ocean in general and the kind of uses and rationality and um, also thinking about the profitability of the ocean, which are very different from the ways in which ocean use for 
traditional Samoan culture is much more about a reciprocity as well as um, a use for both social and cultural ceremonies, but not necessarily for exploitation for for corporate profit. So in chapter one, I talk about how the U.S. Department of Commerce, through the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, known as NOAA, and specifically their arm of the National Marine Fisheries Service, basically is in control of the water around American Samoa from three miles out to 200 miles. After 200 miles, that's considered international waters, and under three miles to shore are considered territorial waters. And so this is a a kind of very clear moment of loss of indigenous control over their ancestral waters that has been in effect since 1976, uh, when uh, the exclusive economic zones were starting to be created by different nations across the globe, and including the United States. And what we find, and again, this is a theme in all of the chapters, is that the priority that gets created by these Western approaches, and particularly U.S. federal programming, is to protect ocean resources for human consumption and long-term preservation for this consumption as well, both for the U.S. overall as well as global global markets. So we have the Western Pacific Fisheries Council, also known as Westpac, which is the local arm of the National Marine Fisheries, who, contrary to other fishery councils in the United States, were working to protect the interests of indigenous fishers since 2002, that basically because of the deeds of session from the turn of the 20th century, there's always this underlying mandate that the U.S. federal government has to be cognizant and um, sensitive to indigenous rights and access to things like there, like land and the ocean. So, um, so in this chapter, I look at a couple of the pieces of legislation that Westpac supports to limit who can actually fish in the waters around American Samoa. In 2002, there's a large vessel prohibited area that protects up to 50 miles from shore for only small scale. American Samoan fisher people, but um, you have the decline of these commercial fishers starting in 2005, and by the time we get to 2014, there's really only, according to NOAA, one active commercial fisher at the small scale level, which are known as alias. And so you have this federal entity that has created a pattern of really trying to uplift the needs of indigenous fishers and now coming into conflict with one subset of these American Samoan fisher people. Because in addition to small-scale fishers, you also have medium-sized longliner vessels, which are also owned by some American Samoans. And these two groups are actually have been vying for access to these protected waters. And so, um, so one of the, the 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 themes that comes out of this chapter as well is the way in which we shouldn't be homogenizing indigenous peoples, right? That yes, these are, they're all commercial fisher people, but ultimately the kind of motivations and the desires and the needs of these small scale versus medium scale fishers don't always coincide and, and, and actually conflict to the point where um, you have in 
2015, the reduction of the large vessel prohibited area from 50 miles to 12 miles so that these medium scale boats can now fish closer to home. And this causes a lot of tension in the community. You have the territorial governor actually filing a lawsuit against NOAA to stop this reduction of this protected area. And in 2017, you actually have a, the, a U.S. District Court in Honolulu ruling in favor of the territorial government to say that the protection of indigenous waters is takes precedent over federal authority and the economic exclusive zone, that basically the deeds of session are... Um, t- are are the kind of the fundamental basis of the relationship of the United States with American Samoa. So this is actually huge. This is something that I am really looking forward to seeing how this now new ruling will have an impact long-term for U.S. relations in American Samoa, but also for other unincorporated territories, both in the Pacific and in uh, the Caribbean, who... um, you know, who could use this court case for, for their own, um, their own interests. So, so chapter one overall is highlighting how the, the federal fishing regulations that all fishers work with, work within, negotiate around, um, over all over U.S. fishing waters are actually really grounded in the kind of the politics and the tensions that are occurring amongst different kinds of indigenous fishers in American Samoa, but that it's an invisible story that we don't hear about much. And that in fact, if we take a closer look at the history of indigenous marine management, that we could actually find some alternatives to the kinds of practices that have been supported in terms of how do we combat overfishing of tuna in particular in um, in this region and in the Pacific overall. Speaking of tuna, much of the fish that's being caught by these commercial fishers, small and large, uh, is tuna uh, that ends up in canneries in, in Tutuila, um, two canneries that are built in the 1950s and 60s. One of them, actually, the starkest you ride uh, cannery is one of the largest cannery in the world uh, until maybe 10 years ago or so, um, which is an amazing, I think, story in, in and of itself that we don't really think about, right? We might buy some tuna in the supermarket, but we don't always check where where the tuna actually comes from. Um, in American Samoa, because of its unincorporated status, has these um, uh, economic advantages uh, uh, for tuna production and for other elements as well. So let's let's delve a little bit deeper into into the tuna canning industry, which I really found it fascinating. This this chapter uh, it looks at labor, it looks at struggles over the minimum wage um, and the legal and economic status of American Samoa as an unincorporated territory. So can you tell us a little bit more about what uh, what these tuna canneries um, are all about and how that uh, played out in the last uh, half century or so? Sure, absolutely. So the what I the, the story I always tell people when they say, oh, you're studying American Samoa, that sounds interesting, but very specific and narrow. And the story I always tell them is that Until 2009, the majority of the tuna, canned tuna that you would buy in the United States, whether it's from Whole Foods or Walmart or Trader Joe's or, you know, whatever local store you have, is coming from two canneries on American Samoa. These these cans of tuna Get the labels change um, depending on what palette they are putting together and who it's getting shipped to, but it's the same labor of uh, of folks in American Samoa who are not being paid the same minimum wage or 
having the same regulations in terms of maximum work hours because of their unincorporated territorial status. Now, the what I what I really focus on um, in this chapter that I think uh, is important to highlight is that when the U.S. federal government started providing tax and tariff breaks, as well as the territorial government, to Starkist and eventually um, Chicken of the Sea, that the priority in terms of establishing this monocrop uh, export-based industry was for the financial benefit of these tuna corporations, that it wasn't in necessarily focused on the interests of what is, how can we as the federal government help to support and foster a diverse type of economic structure to really help support and help American Samoa thrive. But in fact, time after time, as as we go through the history of the tuna canneries in American Samoa, that every time there's a decision point it's it's always it's it's always in favor of these big tuna corporations and the case that i talk about in terms of the increasing of the minimum wage in american samoa to try to get it to be even with that of the continental united states uh which um starts in 2007 that even even this effort which on the surface sounds reasonable, right? That from a a Western perspective, from, from the United States, a living wage is something we have heard about. But really, the debate and the push for it in the US Congress was really based on partisan party politics in the US Congress, not necessarily concern for the needs and um, and desires of the indigenous population in American Samoa. So, um, so what you have is a a system that um, gets created initially with differential labor standards to attract these tuna corporations, right, to establish their businesses in American Samoa, that this made in the USA label that they get to use because this is an unincorporated territory becomes even more profitable when you have military contracts that require goods to be made in the USA, right? Um, But that we, there is a necessity to parse out what that really means when we acknowledge the central and crucial role that unincorporated territories play in in these um, major tuna canning and export industries. So just like in my first book, when I looked at the sugar plantations, right, the cultivation of sugar for the continental United States was really the priority in terms of labor uh, recruitment and um, and the actual kinds of legislation that applied or did not apply in Hawaii. In my next book that looks at the U.S. Virgin Islands, the oil refinery on St. Croix, again, gets these tax and tariff breaks uh, for the benefit of stateside oil companies and has a, a pretty negative impact on the health and the environment of, of, of people in these islands that are not very big. So, um, so this chapter looks at how there's, there's this, this assumption that from, again, a, a kind of Western and American perspective that, oh, if, if we just paid everyone a living wage, then everyone would be okay. But what has happened with this increase that starts in 2007, and so it, the legislation that was passed required a 50-cent increase every year until the minimum wage in American Samoa met that of the continental U.S. In 2007, the minimum wage in American Samoa was $3.26 versus $5.85 in the continental U.S. Um, 
And, but after two years of these increases, one of the two major canneries closed in 2009, citing the um, extra costs that they have had to incur for paying these higher wages. And so you, you see the situation where workers who, who we would assume would want to have a higher wage are actually shying away from the push for more wage increases because when they would rather have a job than not have a job to um, many of the, the uh, manual labor positions are being filled by Samoans from independent Samoa and they are earning us dollars at a much higher rate than they would back in independent Samoa or other folks who live in different Pacific islands in the region. And so there's this really interesting uh, support among some people in American Samoa to keep the tuna canning industry in American Samoa at any cost, right? Because since the 1960s, this tuna canning industry has been the major source of private revenue for American Samoa. The other major source of um, GNP are federal grants from the U.S. government. And so there is this sense that even though a subsistence lifestyle and independence, uh, virtual basic independence uh, on a daily basis from the United States was, was happening up until World War II, there is this fear, almost like a, a colonial mentality, where some folks feel that they need to protect this industry in order to avoid a total collapse of the economy. Um, you, you even have the congressional delegate at the time talking about how American Samoa is not a state of the union. Right? And so why are we treating them like a state of the union? The population is lower, the resources are lower, the infrastructure is not the same. And so the kinds of expectations that are being placed in a blanket way on unincorporated territories um, are actually not taking into consideration the types of economic structures that were initially created by the U.S. federal government that has now created this massive sense of dependence on this industry. So, um, so you have the the wage increases being reduced from fifty cents to forty cents, and instead of every year, it goes down to every three years because of the 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 complaints that are coming from American Samoa, from politicians and leaders who are saying these Congress people in, in the U.S. don't understand who we are, what our history has been, and, and what we need to, to survive. And, um, and that, that difference between continental concerns and Western perspectives of, of protecting um, ideas of a living wage or even just the tuna corporations comes into conflict with um, with with the the needs of American Samoans who really value this idea of va, which is a kind of social space relations where you in any relationship you have, whether it's with another human being or with the land or with sea life, that there should be this reciprocity and mutual respect. And so you also have this really uh, interesting situation where a lot of the workers in the canneries are very grateful for the industrial social welfare programs that are coming out of the canneries. The canneries acknowledge that, um, that, that in traditional Samoan culture, there is an expectation to provide um, gifts for funerals or for weddings, and, and as well to take time out of your regular, 
daily schedule to attend these ceremonies. And you have Starkiss actually providing specific funeral benefits for workers in American Samoa to accommodate these cultural practices. And that kind of respect and acknowledgement and integration of traditional Samoan culture has actually helped the workers actually feel like these these corporations are looking out for 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 their needs and their interests enough to to shy away from organizing at, in unions or for pushing for higher wages but what you see uh, in, in in this case is the prioritization of of global market consumption for canned tuna over the needs of American Samoans in, in their home homeland. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That's a fascinating story. And I think it helps us to reframe debates about labor history, about the history of capitalism and uh, the history of the present of the U.S. empire um, through the lens of American Samoa. Um, as you mentioned, um, if you think about minimum wage debates uh, in the fully incorporated United States, um, it looks quite different um, if you actually see those debates uh, and their effects uh, from Tutuila uh, and from the canneries there. Um, I was really struck that when you wrote about sort of the partisan background of these uh, of these minimum wage debates, Nancy Pelosi's district in the Bay Area, where are you from? And then there's representatives from Georgia, where there's, uh, the chicken of the sea plant moves to. So um I think uh, uh, that chapter really reminds us to to have a, a broader view of the U.S. empire uh, that takes into account uh, unincorporated territories uh, um, beyond the continental United States. Um, shifting gears um, to the uh, to other chapters um, in your book, um, the third chapter is about the National Marine Sanctuary of American Samoa. So much of an environmental history. Uh, policy-oriented um, uh, uh, questions about conservation and science. Can you tell us a little bit more about this biggest uh, national marine sanctuary uh, within the United States, as you mentioned earlier, that I think we know too little about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so again, this is another invisible aspect of the importance that American Samoa plays in within U.S. jurisdiction. And what is so interesting about this case study is that at the beginning, the establishment of this marine sanctuary was actually initiated by the American Samoan Territorial Governor Peter T. Coleman in 1982, that he recognized that one of the advantages of being an unincorporated territory is that you could leverage these environmental protections to protect uh, one's own ancestral waters. And so he is the one who develops a proposal and proposes to um, uh, to Noah that a 0.25 square mile bay, Fangatele Bay, becomes part of the National Marine Sanctuary System of the United States because this bay had been identified as, as, as extremely diverse, but also a victim of the crown of thorns invasive starfish. So basically the coral reefs in the 1980s of this particular bay were pretty devastated. And he had been uh, talking to scientists and, um, and, and folks in NOAA, and they decided they, you know, they, they felt that this bay could be a great in situ lab for how do coral reefs recover from both natural and man-made devastation, because you also have effluent going into the ocean at this time, because there is there are massive infrastructure projects uh, to pave roads, the the major ring road around American Samoa at the time. So, so this 
establishment of the marine sanctuary was something that when I interviewed folks uh, on island, uh, you know, in, in, in the islands that they didn't, they had positive things to say about the creation, right? That there was this, this belief that the process that was engaged was cooperative, that it was collaborative. And you, you have this moment of the, the interests of the indigenous population and the U.S. federal government and environmental and sci- uh, science folks coming together and saying, yes, this is an opportunity that all, diff- all of the parties involved can can see the benefit from. Of course, if you look closely at the comment period, the uh, the reaction of, of the community, not there there are people who are wondering what the National Marine Sanctuary means for indigenous control over their ancestral waters, which ultimately is lost. It's ultimately a story of dispossession because once a an area becomes part of the national marine sanctuary that becomes federally controlled water in perpetuity there is that is the assumption that gets made and created when uh, an area is designated and so when we come into the 2010s you actually have a top down desire from NOAA, both in Washington, D.C., as well as the uh, NOAA officials of the Office of Marine Sanctuaries in American Samoa, who are really interested in expanding the sanctuary. And they start to hold community meetings. But from the testimony that many community members provided on the U.S. Federal Register, they thought that this idea of expanding the sanctuary was just an idea. They didn't realize that there was actually a strong set of supporters in the federal government and in this federal agency to push to expand this sanctuary from 0.25 square miles to eventually 13,581 square miles, and to include five more sites across American Samoa. Now, um, the this violation of VA, right, that, that a lot of the community members express in, in their Federal Register comments, are really angry and really pointed that they really feel that the, the federal process of hearings and, um, and environmental assessments does not coincide with the traditional Samoan decision-making process, which I talk about briefly in this chapter, but I also talk more about in chapter four, where basically if, if you want a decision to be made in a community what you do is you uh, you approach the village matai, the village chiefs, and um, you know you you present them with your proposal, and then you also meet with the women's group as well as the untitled men, and then folks in the community come together and they talk about the proposal, they debate and they think through all the pros and cons, and then eventually. The, the village Matai make a decision on behalf of the entire village and whatever that decision is, everyone in the community abides by. And this process could take up to two years. Uh, it's slow and it's deliberate, but it is the, the, the main way that decision-making occurs in American Samoa, which is again guaranteed by the deeds of session from the turn of the century. So even though the U.S. federal government feels like their six-month comment period, which they actually increased to eight months because of the uproar from the community, that this process still was in so much tension with the expectations that, one, had been set by the deed of session, but also, two, set by the initial creation of this marine sanctuary in 1986 is when it officially becomes uh, on the Tully Bay uh, National Marine Sanctuary, that 
this is a huge disappointment to the community and every uh, every initiative, environmental initiative that is external that comes into American Samoa after the sanctuary expansion is plagued with this skepticism and this um, this 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 lack of interest by members of the community because they just felt they were burned so badly by the process that even though Noah did try to address all of the concerns that were brought up during the eight-month comment period about the expansion, there was still this bad taste in the mouth of folks in the community that they just were not listened to, that this decision had already been made to expand the sanctuary and that they had the meetings because U.S. federal mandate requires that they had a comment period, but that fundamentally, again, you have the prioritization of Western scientific research and the the Western ideas of protecting the ocean for future use, but that comes in direct conflict with the indigenous right to access ancestral waters. This tension between Samoan ways of life and Euro-American ways of conservation and thinking about the environment that you um, trace in chapter three is also uh, the topic then of your last chapter in the book. Uh, it's really a, a thread running uh, through the entire book, um, uh, this, this, this conflict, where you talk about the U.S., uh, what do you call the U.S. imperial grants system? I think that's quite of a, a new term, at least to me. Um, so the money that comes from the federal government to local programs, uh, in this case, environmental programs, uh, as well as data collection on fishing which you say is, is necessary, but quite difficult, um, as most data collection um, is. So can you talk us uh, through um, this last chapter and how uh, marine practices um, uh, uh, figure uh, in, in American Samoa connected to, to the funding that comes from D.C. and uh, also the data collection um, um, connected to these programs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Chapter 4 really looks at local indigenous programming for ocean use and marine practices. And I look at one example, two examples, one of of community-based fisheries management programs where the local department of marine and wildlife resources goes out and actually engages in that village communication decision-making process that I just described to you that is also related to chapter three. And there is so so they they go and they meet with the 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 chiefs and the entitled men and the women um they they let the community decide what kind of restrictions they want to place on their marine protected area so the shores of their particular village and any decision that gets made is not permanent so basically if if a village says, okay, we have seen the destruction of coral, and so we want to restrict these kinds of fishing for for now, if they decide in three years, which has happened in this program, where villages see fish that haven't been in their in their waters for years actually come back after instituting a uh, village-based marine protected area that they decide, okay, that's we, the, these rules and regulations have done their job. And so now let's, let's lift it. Right. Because that's really at the core of American Samoan, Samoan uh, marine management is that when there is an issue, when there's a need, you act uh, and you act quickly, but that, any action is not a necessarily a long-term solution, that there should be a constant evaluation of the health of the water, of the needs of the community, and also the ways in which um, there are also, again, social and cultural bases for fishing for certain kinds of sea life or materials. So, So this program in one sense is an example of a successful program that is very conscientious of VA, 
Samoanva, but at the same time, they are funded by the U.S. federal government. And so they are beholden to the bureaucratic requirements of federal grant making and uh, uh, applications and follow-up. If they don't fill the paperwork out just right, that, that could mean they lose funding for an entire year, right? The funding that they get from the federal government for these programs are allotted on a yearly basis and they're never guaranteed. And so this creates a, a, a lot of stress amongst the employees who work in these programs, both for the marine protected areas as well as data collection, because they're trying to balance both the needs of their community, what is appropriate, proper VA, but also making sure that they are abiding by the terms and the requirements and the expectations of the U.S. federal grant system so that that they can get that money. And um, when we look at the data collection program, which is the other uh, entity that I examine in Chapter 4, we see that data is central to any federal grants that if you can't prove your need or the um, or or the the ways in which you're being successful in your program, that lack of information can result in loss of funding or no funding at all. So so you have folks like um, Tulafono who Ray Tulafono who was the first uh, director of of the Department of Marine and Wildlife Resources saying we have, to, we have to get data because he understood that from a U.S. federal government perspective, that's, that's the key into this funding and that's the way you maintain support and that's the way that we can then support fishers uh, in, in the community. But the reality is that they're, they're still very underfunded that if some, you know, there's only a few people who go out on a regular basis, about two or three people to collect data from both fishers onshore as well as um, on, coming in on boats, in and out on boats. There, it, the ve- vehicles, you need vehicles to get around uh, quickly. Uh, well, there's no way going around quickly on Tituila, right? There's a uh, one one uh, ring road with one lane each way, and the maximum speed is 20 miles an hour. But um, but you know vehicles break down, and then you have to wait for a part to come from either Hawaii or the continental U.S. And again, you're collecting data either really early in the morning or really late at night because that's when fishers are coming in from uh, from their trips. And um, and sometimes the fishers don't want to talk to you because they know maybe they caught something that, according to Western standards, isn't good for the ecology, but... Um, but is something maybe they have been catching for years that's part of their family tradition to to serve at a wedding or a funeral. So um, so in, in both these cases, there's strong indigenous leadership involved, um, and there is a, a high um, regard to traditional Samoan customs, but the fact that these programs are funded by the U.S. federal government, um, that that kind of undercuts the kinds of, um, of, of, of programming and, um, and ad- advancement that can be made by these programs. Thanks for the for the overview um, of the book. I wanted to ask you um, towards the end of our of our interview about what you learned about the book since it came out. It just came out a few months ago. Um, I was curious, since we live in a quite turbulent world, um, what kind of responses have you gotten from uh, people in American Samoa, from other um, folks who who read the book, and what, if anything, has changed in your analysis and in your approach. Um, since it, since the book came out. Right. So I was very fortunate to be part of the Sustainable History Monograph Project funded by the Mellon Foundation, where they are taking 
I think now it's about 80 books on environmental history and turning them into open access, free PDFs in perpetuity um, in conjunction with academic presses. So University of Hawaii approached me when I finished the manuscript uh, and all the revisions to ask if I'd be willing to, to be one of the first participants in this program. And I... Uh, you know, after making sure that my institution would not feel that that was uh, that would be problematic for um, tenure and promotion, things like that, I I was really on board because I think this is really the the future of academic publishing, and it's particularly in a uh, pandemic moment when students and scholars are struggling to get access to materials that being able to share our academic research with anyone who is interested, right? Whether they want to just look up and see where their name is, right? Because I, I, one of the things that's always been hard for me is when I, when I go into a, a community and I, I work so closely with them, you know, I interviewed over a hundred people for this book and I, I would love to give everyone, every single person, a copy, a, a physical copy of the book. But that, just as we know on uh, academic salaries, is not <laughs> possible. But um, but now I can send them a link, and they can download it. They can share it with their friends. And so for me, part of of the reception for this book has been the ability of not only the people who who are featured in the book, who I talked to, to, to come to the, the conclusions that I had in the book, but also people who I'm working with for my next project in the U.S. Virgin Islands. They're reading this book and saying, wow, is this something that you're hoping to, to do in a similar way for, for the Virgin Islands? And seeing the kinds of connections that are common across unincorporated territories that has been really amazing. And then you also have the fact that once I sent out um, the link to anyone who I thought would be interested in it, I had two colleagues immediately assign the book for their classes in the next month that started the next month because it was so easily accessible. And, um, and I think in terms of the you know, what's happening with COVID as well as with the social unrest and the global unrest in terms of systems of oppression, I think that the, the, the current moment is really highlighting how we need to be conscientious of indigenous struggles, right? Um, the struggles of people of color, of, of Black people in the U.S., but, but also the those who are oppressed across the globe, right? And that governments of nations that are either currently colonizers or even have legacies of colonialism and imperialism in other places around the world need to think very carefully about how they want to move forward because we are are moving into a new kind of society where the mistreatment of peoples based on racial hierarchies and whatnot are 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 not no longer acceptable. And then on, on a final note in terms of COVID, you know, studies have been coming out about how Pacific Islanders are also disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And again, this is another way in which Pacific Islanders have been made invisible by health systems and health statistics and, um, and the U.S. federal government. And that, again, we need to start thinking more carefully and working towards building more equitable and uh, inclusive programming, whether it's in health or in um, environmental justice or society in general. I couldn't agree more. Um, coming back to your open access publication um, system, I think that's that's really great um, um, because uh, your book is engaged in thinking about knowledge production uh, in so many ways. So I think it's quite fitting that um, uh, you were able to um, 
to have published this book uh, uh, um, uh, as open access, um, uh, which makes it so easily accessible for everybody. Um, you did mention your next book, so I just wanted to end uh, by asking you uh, to elaborate a little bit more. Uh, it looks, it sounds like you're moving uh, to the Caribbean, um, to the U.S. Virgin Islands, and it sounds like your fourth book could be a synthesis of uh, unincorporated territory, if I'm not um, jumping ahead too far uh, in your career plans. But um, uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about the U.S. Virgin Islands projects, how far along you are and what you're working on there and um, uh, any anything that you wanted, wanted to share about this project. Sure. Yeah, it's actually a, a little bit of a return to the Caribbean since my first book was also about Puerto Ricans. But, um, but yeah, I... Um, um, again, just like I felt that it was so important to do a very in-depth historical study of American Samoa for, for all the reasons we've already discussed. I also think that the U.S. Virgin Islands is another place that has been really ignored by the U.S. Uh, historical narrative, let alone, um, uh, the, the U.S. public and the U.S. federal government. And so I started my research for this project about three years ago. And I, I did the same thing that I did with uh, with my my research in American Samoa. I, I went for an initial research trip and I just tried to talk to as many people as possible. Because again, as academics, we market in these terms of, of colonialism and post-colonialism and indigenous futurity, things like that. But when we're talking about people who are uh, on the ground and living downwind from the heavy industry complex on St. Croix, they're not using those terms, right? Like the term that I use to think in a synthetic way about unincorporated territories is this idea of U.S. colonials or people who have come under the direct authority of the United States, um, which is different. It, it, which can be which is it can be a temporary situation, a liminal space. But um, I I wanted to go and talk to as many people as possible and just find out, okay everyone there knows they're an unincorporated territory, right? They know that they are sub to the continental United States. And, and what do people, whether they, again, are um, uh, just a, a community member um, or a leader in the government, what do they think is has been the largest impact that being part of the United States has had on them, on their family? and on the history of, of the space and place they are from. And it boggled my mind that um, until two, from 1965 to 2013, one of the largest oil refineries in the world that was providing gas and diesel for the southern and eastern coast of the United States was uh, on St. Croix of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Again, a, a small island. and um, and the, and so I, I started to delve deeper in, during my second research trip on this oil refinery, um, especially because I had done so much work on environmental issues in the second book. I thought, okay, this would be a, a good dovetail. But then I realized that the story I really wanted, want to tell is about the invisible role that women have played in the establishment the maintenance, as well as work against this oil refinery. You have the landowner who gives the initial land grant for the refinery, being a Crucian woman, a, 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 you know, a woman from St. Croix, Afro-Caribbean, who negotiates very harshly with Leon Hess, the head of Hess Oil, and has him sitting on her doorstep outside with his head in his hands, because she is more interested in making sure she's cooking dinner for her community than negotiating with this stateside businessman. Um, you have administrative assistants and custodial services who are women working actually in the refinery, right? They may, women may not be the actual oil refiners, but they are there and they are crucial to the continual 
and smooth functioning of the actual refinery. And then you have environmental scientists, you have lawyers, you have doctors and nurses, as well as educators and community activists who are really trying to question what the the benef- true benefits are of this industry for for their community. So um, so this book is going to be looking at health uh, as well as environmental justice issues, but from the lens of a uh, Crucian women's history and Afro Caribbean women's history, and um, to really move away from the male patriarchal masculine stories that are that are out there about the oil industry and even about ecology about the business world and environmental studies so that we can have an even more full picture of um, of what's happening in the USVI and you're right I, I would love for the fourth book to be kind of a synthesis work now that I've done this really close study uh, of several unincorporated territories so so that that's that that's down down the road. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like two great projects coming up. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today, Joanna. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you. <laughs>